Hello and welcome to The Breadwinners. I'm Jennifer Owens. And I'm Rachel Ellison. So this is a show where we talk about everything work and family. So I don't know what else that leaves, but you know, that's, <laughs> that's what we're doing. So, you know, before we get started, the best way to support us is to rate and review our show wherever you get it. Um, I know that everyone says it. It's true and it really does help. And so does following our socials at all the, you know, at the breadwinners, sending us questions, you know, yeah. saying, you know, fan notes to Raquel. That's that's all. That's all we need. <laughs> fan notes, exactly. And don't forget, we have merchandise that we love. We've got sweatshirts. We've got mugs. We've got T-shirts. Jennifer and I wear them all the time. And you should, too. So please check those out when you look at our, our website. This week, I'm passing the mic back to you. So uh, what are we talking about this week? We are talking about Rosie the Riveter. <gasps> like my socks? Talking about merch? Yeah, you have Rosie the Riveter socks. But you're going to hear something very interesting today. Or maybe you already know this, but we'll see. Um, okay. But we're going to talk about Rosie the Riveter. We're going to talk about where her kids went to daycare. I know. <laughs> and... <laughs> That was the gossip last weekend with a bunch of women that I was hanging with. It was all about childcare. So yes, hopefully it's gotten so much better since poor Rosie the Riveter. I'm sure it has. I'm sorry. Why Why <laughs> poor Rosie the Riveter? She had great childcare. Oh. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Did she have to get on a waiting list like 18 months, like before she was even pregnant? No, she did not. Oh, but her daycare did only lasted a couple of years. So oh. there you go. But okay. So we're also going to talk about how World War II changed work family policy forever. Well, it changed the work fam the space of of work family, which as we said encompasses everything. So it changed everything forever. That's that's <laughs> that's all right. We're going. So as we know as I, that's my going back in time noise. <laughs> ah, okay. Okay, got it. As we know, or as, as many people know, when men went to war in World War II, women went to work to, then there were several manufacturers throughout the country who hired women to replace guys who went into military service. One thing I didn't know is that the American industry provided almost two thirds of all allied military equipment produced during the war. Did you know that? No. I, I guess I know I didn't. So in Sorry. four years, I'm sure there are a lot of people who know that, and I just you know that I know, <laughs> but but I I mean I guess like some people might assume right that yeah. we were pretty big um, production, but so in four years, American industrial production, which was already the world's largest, doubled in size to produce that. Mm. So hello, we're we've yeah. got some. We've got some, uh, you know, work that was being done behind yes. the scenes of the war there. So who was Rosie the Riveter? So she was this cultural icon of World War II, representing women who worked in factories and shipyards during World War II. It also became this feminist symbol, this picture of this woman in a red bandana with her arm flexed, rolling up her sleeve, in case you don't know what Rosie the Riveter is like and you somehow listen to the show and and that makes a lot of sense. And you're like it was Wait, initially titled this is new we information. Can do it. <laughs> <laughs> it was initially titled We Can Do It. 
It had nothing to do with anyone named Rosie. So there was a guy named J. Howard Miller who was hired by a wartime production campaign run by Westinghouse Electronics Corporation. He was hired to make this picture, to kind of, uh, this propaganda picture, right? Yeah. Then in 1943, I know this is, this is all the background you wanted to know about Rosie. So in 1943, there was a song, Rosie the Riveter, that came out, um, oh. which I wanted to play, but I couldn't get a hold of it. So we're just going to have to imagine what it sounded like. And so then Norman Rockwell did this. Now check it out. Oh, okay. I'm coming. I'm looking. What have we got? Oh, yes. I've seen that. Oh, I like her curves. <laughs> yeah. Well, she, but interestingly enough, so check out her. Um, she's got good curves. She's got, yeah. but see her lunchbox as Rosie. Oh, wait a minute. Let me go close. So he's doing her as the cover of the Saturday Evening Post. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. So that is where it sort of solidified, right? Ah, okay. So she's Rosie the Riveter, but Rosie the Riveter is really that picture. It's, you know, it's so it's. Uh, we can do it. We don't what? necessarily know that the, the we can do it picture. You don't necessarily know she's a Riveter, but the uh, Norman Rockwell cover, she's literally holding a machine that does rivets. Yes. Yes. Hmm. So who was Rosie symbolizing? Who was this riveter? So there's a woman named Emily, and who who were these women, really? Yeah. So there's a woman named Emily Yellen who wrote Our Mother's War, American Women at Home and at the Front during World War II. By the way, there are a lot of baby boomers who wrote about our mother's Rosie the Riveter. There's a lot, <laughs> a lot of, I mean, not surprisingly, right? There's a lot of work out there. Written, yeah. by, written about our mothers during the war. So written by the boomers. So anyway, she said that there were 11.5 million women working prior to 1940 and 6.5 million joined the workforce during the war. Hmm. So that's interesting, right? Say that number again. I got the six. What, what was the first, the base? 11.5 million were working prior to 1940. Huh. And then here comes like uh, like 50% more on top of it. Mm -hmm. Mm. It's intriguing because you just, you know, the propaganda is that like uh, nobody was working and then everybody worked and then nobody worked. Right. Right. Untrue. Untrue. Yeah. So not all the jobs were working in plants, though. So 2.5 million women went into wartime industrial jobs out of that 18. Right. Well, you needed to have the women in the uh, swing bands in the movies. And so in that era, it's always swing bands, all women instrumentalists, which I love. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's who they needed. They needed. So at the height of the years of the war in the years 1943 and 1944, 50% of all adult women were employed in this country. Wow. Okay. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So one of the, we're going to narrow in, since I live in New England now, we're going to narrow in on New England. So New England had a strong manufacturing base, already knew, mm -hmm. already kind of had been hiring women for textile mills in the 19th century. Now they were seeing all these war plants and shipyards. 
so this was, you know, so folks got got there on board. There was already a pipeline of women there was working. A exactly. Yeah. Just sent you another picture that you can Uh-oh. look at. Let me see. Good work, sister. We never figured you could do a man-sized job. Oh, Lord. Uh, You know, so I'm going to ask you to help keep our economy going and to fight this war by making this equipment. And then I'm going to ding (laughs) you for being a woman. (laughs) Love it. America's women have met the test. So I guess that's the begrudging approval of a white guy. Got it. Yeah, exactly. Okay. That's what we needed. That's what we needed. So we're in New England right now. We're going to narrow in a little bit more on one plant because I think they had a really fascinating situation going on there called the Springfield Armory. So there were only 618 women working at the Springfield Armory before the war. And so then a lot more people came in during the war. There were 50,000 employees worked around the clock making 5,000 rifles a day. And at one point, 5,210 of the workers, so that's 42.5%, were women. Wow. Okay. Right? Interesting. Also, what is interesting is that these were pretty complicated machines. So it would take, previously, it took somebody four years in apprenticeship on a complicated machine, right? Yeah. To learn how to do it. But wartime required streamlined operations. So there were, so often male coworkers would, with the necessary experience, would be sort of training these women. Right. So they're onboarding like completely, you know, made it much faster, sped up. Sped up. Exactly. Exactly. So there were accommodations that were made for Rosie in the Springfield Armory. So they were following like these guidelines for manufacturers on dealing with this brand new workforce, right? So they were like, hey, guess what? Let's make some bathrooms that are (laughs) for both genders. Let's do that. All of a sudden there were chairs and stools. Oh, yeah. I don't know why men- Well, you know, we're delicate creatures, but yes. (laughs) Exactly. On-site cafeterias was new. Huh. And then the Women's Bureau of the Department of Labor advised an absence for pregnant women of six weeks before she delivered her child. And oh, two that's nice. After the child was born. Yeah. As one one source says, some manufacturer preferred to fire pregnant women. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's nice to have options. You know, yeah. you really want options. So, yeah. So at first. I do love the pre I, I was just talking to someone who's who's pregnant now, and um, her employer. It's a month prior to your due date, and it took me back because you don't think about these things when you're not pregnant. But that, right. like that month before, is such, and it's not a gift, but it's such a great benefit. You know, it's, yeah. it's just such a proper benefit. So I love that they were thinking about that back then too. Yeah, yeah, they were thinking about. It. I mean, they weren't paying for it but they were thinking about taking someone. Oh, it wasn't paid leave? No. Oh, oh, oh. I was like that. I was like, yeah, that's My bad, my bad. But yeah. Okay. All good. Okay, so. me. (laughs) Right. What were you thinking? In fact, there were supposed to be, it was supposed to be equal pay for equal work. 
Oh, and what are you going to tell me? (laughs) At first, the armory in particular was pretty slack on that. But then they did revise the pay rates eventually. So they brought in these these uh, women and and immediately instituted a pay gap, even though they were running the same machines and making the same rifles. Yep. Just because of their anatomy. Got it. Sure. So yes, exactly. Skilled female workers made an average wage before this equal pay happened of thirty one dollars and twenty one cents. Um, weekly and mm-hmm. male workers made $54.65. Crazy. I, it's just crazy. And and you know that the they do it and they say, well, because the men have families to support. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yep. That's exactly right. But then they did equal pay for equal work? S- yeah, but I'm not sure when. Yeah, that's interesting. The numbers that I'm reading in 1944, I don't know. We'll yeah. have to check that out. But at some tomorrow. point, they they had to. And I also, uh, you know, not to get away from Rosie the Riveter too much, but I wonder what the talent wars were at this point. You know, like it, maybe I wonder if, you know, pay is always a competitive weapon. Uh-huh. That maybe they were forced to do it because women could go work at this other factory. Oh, interesting. And make bombs or make parachutes or something and uh and do better than making at the rifle factory. So interesting. Interesting but. theory. Interesting theory. So here's a weird fact about the armory in particular. Speaking of talent selection and development, I don't know. The armory tried to pair up specific women with specific jobs according to their kind of natural abilities. So they hired this guy, Ed Whalen, to do these aptitude tests that he developed to see how women fared in particular job categories within the armory. Yeah. So they weren't looking at education. They were literally looking at this. But specifically speaking, women who could do more than one thing at a time, like pat your head and rub your stomach, which I hope to God was not the entirety of the I just I'm just waiting for you to tell me that he also like what quackery this man also did. No. Yeah. I mean, you know, they had a significant advantage in a position like than women who could not mm-hmm. pat their head and rub their stomach at the same time. It's crazy. I ho- hope that if the job sucked that the the head tummy person could do, then you just like the rumor would go out and everybody would be like, no, I can't do it. I'm sorry. <laughs> Not good at that at all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't, I, it would be interesting. It would definitely be interesting to read more about, about exactly what. Yeah. What how they thought about. they were being scientific. That's always fun. You know, always fun. Always fun. So, okay. So here's the big question. And something that came up in World War II, and that I already mentioned, so it's not that big of a reveal, is daycare. Childcare was a really, while Rosie was working, where did her kids go? So did you know that before World War II, organized daycare didn't really exist in the United States? Interesting, right? You saw those like tenement schools, but those were more about like older kids for education. Right. Well, so there were there were a couple things that, at least according to my research, we could we could point to. So one, the children of middle and upper class families might go to a private nursery school for a few hours. That happened. 
as Brett used to call it, the go get a cup of coffee school. Yeah. Go get a cup of coffee school. (laughs) Children from poor families whose father had died or couldn't work. Yeah. There were day nurseries there for charitable, funded by charitable foundation, but there were no affordable all day childcare centers for families in which both parents worked. Hmm. Interesting. A situation that was common for low-income families, particularly Black families, mm-hmm. and less common for upper, upper, middle, and upper middle, upper, blah, blah, middle and upper middle class families. Right. The war changed that. So in 1940, the United States passed the Defense Housing and Community Facilities and Services Act, known as the Lanham Act. Okay. I was hoping there was something, <laughs> something easier to say. Lanham Act. Yes. Which, okay, which I thought was directly related to childcare facilities, but which obviously wasn't. It gave the Federal Works Agency the authority to fund construction of houses, schools, and other infrastructure for laborers in the growing defense industry. But hmm. it wasn't supposed to fund childcare specifically. They just stretched it. In late 1942, they started funding childcare. So, Back to Springfield. So there was the High School of Commerce in Springfield, and they basically had high, I think, staff and high schoolers, if I understood correctly, who were providing Springfield daycare centers for the armory. Right. Oh, okay. So, yeah. So it was three dollars a week for nursery school. Wow. <laughs> Fifteen cents daily for lunch. Um, yeah, some, some home ac students participated in the nursery, but I wasn't all run by home ac students. $3 in 1944. I looked this up. Oh, is, this is a good guess. <laughs> it's $47.52 today. Wow. Yeah. I'm going to need a moment with that number. <laughs> yeah. But then when you look at what they're making, but uh, anyway. Yeah. But so 42 times what? Even if you did like eight hours a day times five days a week? No. Does that make, it would be 1600 a week? Does that sound right? I don't know. Anyways, anyway, it's more- I'm not f- doing the math. Yeah. Tell- I know. What's that thing from Saturday Live? No one told me that math was part of this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So what I have just sent you- Yeah. Is an advertisement for- or oh. a kind of overview, like a brochure for the Commerce Child Care Center. They also have to follow a carefully planned program, which teaches them healthful habits. These yeah. are the same so things I look for for my kids, pre-K, mm-hmm. right? What? This is the same things, you know, like I wanted the same brochure for my kids' daycare, you know? Exactly, exactly. So what I think is interesting here, well... So when you look at like what's the difference between daycares now and daycares then, it really was much more focused on not early education, but like health and hygiene, like how there were music classes where they sang nursery songs. There were, you know, there were definitely some educational components, but the general consensus is that they were much more about kind of health and well, you know, like, yeah. like how to be a healthy kid, basically. So as it says here, 
the nursery's open from 6.30 a.m. to 6 p.m., six days a week. The cost for children two to four years, two and a half to four years is $3. And from four to 12 years is a is $1.50 weekly. And Jennifer, skip down to the next yeah. paragraph. I want to learn about Nina, Miss Nina Jordan, who runs it. But yes. And read, read oh. for us. What? Children can be left at the nursery until six. Mothers who finish their shift at three o'clock can do any necessary shopping downtown before calling for their children at six o'clock. Many women have said they feel better while at work because they know their children are being given the very best of care at the Commerce Child Care Center. Yeah, no duh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, I mean, bananas, right? What, I also just love like- that it's set up. I do have questions for if it's if the armory is working around the clock. I mean, it then means you have to figure your shifts. Like, are were the women all working, all the working moms working at a shift where they could get childcare, which is still an issue today. You know, like healthcare workers who work overnight, where do their kids go? You know, right. But I kind of like that it's built in that you would also have some get stuff done time too. Yeah, that's awesome. Right? <laughs> I yeah. mean, why? I never had that. <laughs> yeah, nobody builds in get stuff done time. It's amazing. Yeah. So, yeah, that's like uh, that visual tremendous is yeah. just is quite amazing. And so, I'm not sharing. They, they part of the brochure is like pictures of of kids doing daycare with stuff. Miss Nina Jordan. With Miss Nina Jordan, I love so, her. <laughs> so, guess how many kids received care through these facilities? During the war. Oh, well, let's see if it's in my neighborhood, um, about 40. (laughs) (laughs) Never enough seats for all these sort of schools. No. How many kids? 550,000 to 600,000. Okay. Yeah. So when the war ended, guess what the government said? This is such a great program, and these kids have benefited, and Miss Nina Jordan knows what she's doing. So let's continue to fund this, because this is really helping our economy. (laughs) I'm sorry that I totally read your notes. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. No, it's not what happened. So the war ended in August 1945, and the Federal Works Agency announced it would stop funding child care as soon as possible. Wow. So parents responded by sending the agency. I love that I found this. I don't know who had this, but sending 1,155 letters, 318 wires, 794 postcards, and petitions with 3,647 signatures urging the government to keep that open. Yeah, but it was a bunch of women. Who cares? (laughs) (laughs) So in response, there was additional funding that they provided through February 1946. And after that, it was over. So it's amazing. It's like, let's, let's get rid of it. Um, You know, job one, we don't even, I don't even care about welcoming the veterans home. Get rid of that child care. Get rid of that child care. Exactly. We could talk about, and I think we will in another episode, what happened, not lobbying for national child care when that gained momentum and yeah. And what Nixon vetoed and so much fun yeah to read about what we oh we didn't have but so okay so we have the war the child care are closing right yeah the war is over child cares are closing but because they had had this kind of moment of 
encouraging women to be part of the workforce. And that threatened kind of the fabric of the American family or the definition of the American family. Mm -hmm. As perceived by these, the guys who hold the purse strings. Yeah. Correct. They needed to course correct, right? Like the propaganda needed to make sure that it reinforced that women's work was in the home. So all of a sudden, domesticity was like, as one writer said, domesticity was celebrated in the post-war years as it had been in the Victorian era. They were supposed to forget the skills they learned. Yeah. And make their families and their homes the centers of their lives. So magazines were all about giving advice on laundry, preparing meals. There were shiny washing machines. We really want you to forget that you know how to make guns. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So, yeah. So will you read this quote? Oh, no. American women also were under immense pressure from their country to protect and defend steadfastly the very idea of traditional home and family and their central place in it that was transforming so fast. Yeah. So is the transforming so fast meaning that getting them back into the homes? Yeah. Amazing. So we're we're going to put it on as fast as you learned how to make those gun manufacturing uh, machines. We need you to learn how to make these homes work. Exactly. So I'm going to send you. Oh, look at the Saturday evening post. Tell us what you're seeing right now. Well, I see a bunch of riveters who are wearing face masks and they're like, she's painting the, what is that? Is that a, like a bomber airplane or something? Yeah, That's on the like left. That's from 1944. And then right. the other one, is that 1955? Is uh, a very sad Doris Day looking at her, a terrible cake that she has made. By the way, I also just made a chocolate cake for Brett's birthday, but um, oh, I was nice. happier about it. But yeah, yeah, you didn't have that face on. I did not have that face, but yeah. I also wasn't that dressed up and wearing a cute little untouched apron too. Yeah. So I totally want to read the suspicious colonel who runs a spine network of his own. <laughs> I totally want to read that. Yeah. 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 So yes, that is a very different take on womanhood. Yeah. So it it was... Yeah. So like, what is, what, what is the, what was the, the impact of Rosie the Riveter, I think is the question. Right? Yeah. And especially in 1955, like, you know, like we can take her on now and have her on socks and, and the like, and, you know, a little anodyne, but you know, yay, we love her and she represents, but in, you know, what is happening in the, in the early mid fifties? Does she just disappear? Well, Essentially, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she did. But we can look at some of the things that, you know, when we think about some of the short-term effects of Rosie the Riveter, there were a couple things that were interesting. So aside from the fact that everything turned around and all of a sudden she was making a cake in her kitchen and- Yeah. (laughs) And wishing for the uh, feminine mystique. Yes, got it. (laughs) Exactly. So first there was a salary increase. So women made three times the amount per hour working in assembly line than a domestic or clerk worker. Oh, okay. And so domestic jobs would not be considered to be the only choice for work. 
after that. Right. Because those are the high tech jobs of the era, I would think. You know, you're running big machines, probably yeah. proto computers to, you know, for tool and die machines, that sort of thing. Those are, you know, that's high end stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So another piece was that women administered money for the first, in some cases oh. for the first time, right? Creating budgets. Yep. And what's interesting is when they lost their jobs in these manufacturing plants, some of them went to work in, became clerks and worked in offices after the war, creating a tremendous impact on the connotation of being a secretary, one writer wrote. So secretary became, after World War II, became this kind of gendered Really? Right? Because you see all those like old movies in the 30s and all the clerks are men, you know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So that shifted. That shifted. But of course, we had, as you might have heard, a baby boom in post-war. This is new information. (laughs) (laughs) So, but, you know, at that point, we saw Saturday Evening Post. That's what you were looking at earlier. But all of the the Dick and Jane readers, the educational films, the television shows, the post-war Americans were really looking at, you know, feminine stay-at-home moms, cooking, cleaning, taking It's so insidious about how it's everywhere, you know, that it's not just like posters. It's, you know, it's all the content. Exactly. It's in the readers with your kids. I mean, that's crazy. Yeah. No, it's really crazy. And then even beyond that, So this woman, Ruth Schwartz-Cohen, wrote that psychiatrists, psychologists, and popular writers of the era critiqued women who wished to pursue a career and even women who wished to have a job, referring to such, quote, unlovely women as, quote, lost, suffering from penis envy, ridden with guilt complexes, or just plain man-hating. That's a lot. Uh, But, you know, I'll own it. Okay. Yeah. So no, but it was coming from all directions. So we have the magazines. And your point being. (laughs) (laughs) So that, my friend, is how Rosie the Riveter, who Rosie was. Yeah. What she did and what happened to her kids while she was uh, working. And then she, so she, you know, like try to like literally push her back into a box. And then she comes again. And then she's such an icon. Mm -hmm. Do you have any sense when she was like resurrected? Oh, that's a great question. I don't. Because I just feel like our entire, you know, like coming of age. Yeah. Rosa the Riveter has been there. True, true. Although there was an article in The Guardian, which I can send, which was, it it starts with this, uh, or I can, we can post starts with this picture of Beyonce in Rosie the Riveter outfit and basically talking about how Rosie the Riveter was, you know, how it's been, it's kind of a false symbol because it had been sort of given and taken away. And it, it was just right. That it's not like a straight, it's not a linear line of, Mm -hmm. you know, of women's progress. Exactly. But no, I I don't know when it became this icon. I think when I bought it on my socks. Okay. When you bought it on your socks was that when it happened. Yeah. So that's what we know about Rosie. And now we see it everywhere, right? You know, we like look in any stock art library and you'll see 8 million, you know, interpretations of it. Right. Happy, sad, multicultural, all the things. It's like, she's here. 
And it's funny that she wasn't, uh, we can do it. And Rosie the Riveter were two different things that became one thing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that was all, you know, it was, and there was the song, which we will. We have to find. We have to find. Yeah. So uh, have you ever dressed up as Rosie the Riveter? I have. I knew, I knew it. I knew one of us had. I have not, but yes. <laughs> I have. I don't remember when it was, but I definitely did. I definitely did. Well, I'm glad it, it I'm glad it turned out that she, you know, was a real person and she was actually, you know, a collaborator and or something. <laughs> I'm glad I'm glad she's still it's okay. She's a good icon and we continue to, you know. Is she maybe false in the sense of you can't just say and everything was great after that, but she is an icon that we can go back to and she telegraphs, you know, female strength mm-hmm. and and the good things that women do, you know, w- when we work. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think we could have learned some lessons from the child care, the daycare. Yeah. Well, and, ha- and, and then really the opposite side is the lessons we learned when we don't help Rosie the Riveter do it. We can do it if we help Rosie with what she needs so she can do it. Exactly. Ah. Exactly. Ah. Well, thank you. That was awesome. Cool. Thank you. I'm so glad that I got to do this, this learning about Rosie and we had a fun time. Totally. Well, follow us on the, on the socials, write us anytime. And until next week, what do we like to say? Keep hustling. Keep hustling. This podcast is part of the Sound Advice FM network. Sound Advice FM, women's voices amplified.